This is VLX number 125, To Drink the Cup. We are in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. VLX stands for Video Lexu Divina, the Patristic Bible Study and Ignatian Prayer Series Online. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris Fidi, Spiritu Santi, Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris Fidi, Spiritu Santi, Amen. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Well, thank you for your patience in me getting BLX back up on the air. We had a family emergency, and then I had a silent retreat. So going to try not to uh, throw a lot of excuses in your direction. But if you are new to this channel, we had a lot of people join after our I Was On Dr. Taylor Marshall show talking about narcissism. All you really have to do is go back and listen to VLX 1, 2, and 3 to learn how to pray. My encouragement would be to either do that or just refrain from that and join us where we are now. I don't think you have to go listen to all the previous 120 whatever VLXs. Feel free to just jump in in this series right now in Matthew chapter 20 where we are now um, because I think if you put it on your head to go all the way back and listen to everything, it might just take too long. So join us where we are in Matthew 20. This is an apostolic Bible study where we look at what the church fathers have to say about every verse of the Bible and how St. Ignatius would have guided his men in imaginatively placing themselves there, same as Teresa of Avila would have placed her women in there. Um, it's, it's excellent to use the imagination, but it's great to have the formation of the fathers theologically uh, before we do that. So here we have Jesus and the Twelve Apostles and presumably large chunks of their own family and friends walking, this huge horde of people are walking from, I think it was Jericho is the last place we were, to Jerusalem. And these are two cities that are still there. But the point is that Jesus is in the height of his ministry. Remember, there's only 28 chapters in Matthew and we are almost into Matthew 21. So Jesus is very popular. There's a lot of miracles happening. Um, he was still a man of sorrows. This is where this, this notion that Jesus was just, uh, someone put on Facebook recently, frolicking. <laughs> I mean, no, Jesus did not frolic. He was a man of sorrows, and he was a manly man. Uh, so this idea that, that he was um, a silly person is just ridiculous. He was not a silly person. He was, um, he was a man of sorrows. He was very tender. He was very loving. 
He was love itself, but um, that does not mean that he was shallow as most American movies like to make him. Um, of course he wasn't shallow. But anyway, at this point you have Jesus and the 12 apostles and presumably a lot of their family and friends, and they are walking to Jerusalem. And Jesus seems invincible. Of course, as God, he is invincible. But as man, he's not invincible. He can be killed. And his apostles seem to have ignored the prophecies about this. Why? Probably because they want to they want to be with this military messiah. They want to conquer with this military messiah, who they think is going to be a military messiah. Remember what we talked about before, that the um, just 200 years prior, we had the Maccabees, and the Maccabees fought against the Greeks, because the Jews are very sick of all these people who've invaded their, their land. You had um, the Persians, the Babylonians, um, that's Iraq and Iran, then you had the Greeks, then you had the Romans, pretty much all these empires that are still around Israel today successfully invaded. Can you imagine if Jews today, Israelis today, had one decade been conquered by the Iranians and then another decade by the Iraqis? I think chronologically I have those two backwards. Um, but that's literally what the Persians and the Babylonians are, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. I mean, you get tired of this. So it makes a lot of sense that what we're going to see, the apostles' mothers want them to be the next military leaders, to overthrow Romans. And every mom wants the best for her kids. Every mom wants the best for her kids, but especially Jewish moms. And I called my Jewish friend, Dennis Prager, to confirm this so the few enemies that are still following me on VLX know that I'm not being racist. And uh, Dennis didn't pick up. But I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that a Jewish mom coming up to a rabbi for a favor for her son could fit in any movie in the 1950s or 1960s or 1970s or 1980s just a little favor. He's such a good boy. And that's what the mom of James and John wants there is, yeah, there's some good boys here. And when Jesus takes over the Roman kingdom, my boys need to be at his side. And you know what? She's right. This kingdom will be Roman and Christ will be reigning as the absolute king. Ah, but it will come from violence against the apostles, not violence from them just as this kingdom will be established via violence against Christ, not from him. So here you have them all walking, all 12 apostles and Jesus, and probably more family than just the mother of James and John, maybe dozens of more people are following Jesus from the apostles' families. And it is clear, they can all see, that Jesus is clearly the most miraculous, attractive, powerful, convincing, wise, and loving rabbi anyone has ever met. But just like now in the 21st century, here's the key to today. Everyone wants Jesus and very, very few want him with the cross. Verse 20 today. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So first notice here, this is another one of those things we just read and we skip over. She goes up to Jesus with her sons. They are with him, as we just heard. And so they're with her, but they're silent for this interaction. And we're not sure if this is in earshot of the other apostles and their family. We're going to find out later. It probably was. But notice here this very interesting word, adore or worship or prostrate. Even before the resurrection of Jesus, the mother of James and John was smart enough and pious enough to know to worship Jesus in adoration before asking him something. Isn't that important even for our lives? 
We must worship in adoration before asking something. The word right there in Greek is to adore or prostrate oneself. Uh, also notice here in verse 20 that even misunderstanding the cross, she still knew to get down on her knees. Proskenusa, a past participle there, literally meaning adore or to kneel down. Okay, verse 21, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So, you know, you and I hear that word kingdom and our mind immediately goes to kingdom of God and we immediately think of something spiritual. The Greek is basileia for kingdom, but probably the mother of James and John here. She's thinking of a Jewish kingdom, a physical Jewish kingdom, after so many years of persecution, invasions by the, by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans are ruling in Jerusalem. And what does a king have? Well, a king has viceroys. So she hopes Jesus is going to take over and her sons can be viceroys. What is a viceroy? A viceroy is a ruler exercising authority in a colony on behalf of a sovereign. So, of course, she does recognize it is Christ to be the emperor, but basically, for her sons to be viceroys, again, rulers exercising authority in a colony on behalf of a kingdom, this is clearly what she wants, is for them to have military power and political glory. Now, little does she know they will be viceroys, but a kingdom of love and pain, not of power and domination. In fact, St. James, her son, will be viceroy of Spain, viceroy of the Catholic faith in Spain, that country that will go on to evangelize the entire world because sometime after James and after 800 years of fighting the Muslims to keep the faith in the 16th century then, uh, Spain in that one century would produce missionaries to go all over the whole world. This would be the establishment of the Jesuits. St. Ignatius and St. Francis Xavier both came from Spain, and also the explosion of the faith in Spain in the 16th century came from Spanish saints like St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila. Well, the father in faith to all of these is St. James. And so James and John and their mother at this point, they do not know that they will rule, or they, they are asking to rule, but they don't know at this point it's going to be Again, like I said, through pain and love, not through earthly glory. But she's asking him, again, as I said, to be his sidekicks as he establishes this Jewish kingdom. And you can't blame her for that. Every mom wants the best for her kids. St. John Chrysostom says, They wished, since they had heard that the disciples should sit upon twelve thrones to, to obtain the primacy of that seat. And they knew that they would be prepared before the rest, with the exception of Peter, but fearing that Peter was preferred before them, they dared to say, Grant that one of us may sit on thy right hand and the other on thy left. We may learn from this how bold and blind and insatiable ambition is to which she incited these two apostles, apostles, because they had seen that in the transfiguration, which was the beginning of Christ's kingdom, they were preferred to Christ to the other apostles. So what St. John Chrysostom is saying right there is, James and John knew they were pretty important since they got invited to certain things like the Transfiguration that the other nine didn't get invited to. Uh, but they did happen to see Peter was better than them, and so they kind of wanted to uh, wedge their way into Christ's heart and maybe sideline Peter a little bit since they knew, they knew they were number two and three, but they wanted to be number one. Verse 22, Jesus answered, 
you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink, that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And we named today's VLX after this. So here we have more proof that the mother of James and John, the mother was doing the talking up to this point, but now Jesus must turn and he asks these two sons if, basically, can you go to battle with me? They say, we are able. In Greek, the word is dunametha. That's the root of the English word dynamite, power. So literally they're saying, we have the power to do that. And they will have the power after Pentecost, but they don't understand this kingdom and they don't understand, understand what Christ is asking at this point. Again, they don't understand it's spiritual warfare, not physical warfare that he's recruiting them for. Okay, in verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup. Will they? Of course. As you know, St. James the Greater, he founded the faith in Spain. He died in Jerusalem and his body was brought back to Spain and his feast day is July 25th. We priests wear red every July 25th because James did shed his blood, meaning he did drink the cup of martyrdom connected to Christ's own death. This is why Jesus says, you will drink my cup. He knows this. He knows they're going to die in torture, in pain, in, in, in humility and love, first of God's glory and secondly of salvation of souls. By this point, it won't be for their own glory. Um, now, how about, how about John? Might be looking at this and say, well, but St. John, we wear white on his feast day in December. Did he really drink the cup? Father Lapida answers that. He says, St. John also drank of this cup when he was plunged, when he was plunged by Domitian at Rome before the Latin gate into a cauldron of boiling oil. Let me pause real quick. In the old calendar, we actually have that as a feast day when John was put uh, outside Rome in a gate or outside a gate in Rome into a cauldron of boiling water, or oil rather, it's even worse, cauldron of boiling oil. This is a feast on the old calendar, uh, but he came out miraculously renewed in strength. So it was just Christ's will that he not die a martyr. That's why we wear white on his feast day, but they did try to kill him. And then we also hear this, Father Lapide continues, so that by a new miracle, he was a martyr of living rather than by dying. Again, not only Prochorus, St. John's disciple in his life of St. John, the truth of which is rightly suspected by Baronius, but also St. Isidore, claims that St. John the Apostle really drank the cup of poison, but that he also drank it without harm. Whence also he's generally represented in pictures holding a cup. So that's why sometimes you'll see these old icons of St. John the Beloved or St. John the Apostle with a cup with a little serpent coming out of it because uh, he drank, um, uh, presumably accidentally, a cup of poison and live. Maybe someone tried to uh, poison him, but it was it was God's will that he continue to live. And Father Lapide says, and lastly, we may say that the whole life of St. John was a continual martyrdom, for he lived a very long time after all the apostles, to the year of our Lord 101. And this long absence from Christ, his beloved, after whom he was continually longing, was a lengthened martyrdom to him, as it was also to the Blessed Virgin, to whom he had been given as a son, by Christ on the cross. And Christ continues in verse 23, But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, let's pause. This Doesn't this make it sound like God the Father is God, but God the Son isn't God? Yes, that's what the Arians say here, but Father Lapide recognizes that as he writes. 
the Arians thought that it is here said that it was not in the power of Christ to give this, but of the Father, and consequently that Christ was not equal to the Father. But they are in error. For Christ is here putting an antithesis not between himself and the Father, but between James and John, who were ambitiously seeking the first place in his kingdom, and those to whom it of right belonged. The point of the argument lies in the word you, which is read in the Vulgate, though not in the Greek and other versions, whence Remigius says, It is not mine to give to you, that is, to proud men, such as you are, but to the humble. Again, it is not mine to give to you as my kinsmen according to the flesh, for it is given not to the person but to the life, as St. Jerome says, not from favor but according to merit. Christ, however, says here that it belongs rather to the Father, both because as man Christ was always subject to the Father, and also that by giving them a proper reason he might send them away from himself and refer them to the Father, so that they might humble themselves before him and be prevented by shame from asking for it. And also lastly, because as wisdom and works of wisdom are proper to the Son and works of goodness to the Holy Spirit, so works of power and providence to which it belongs to predestinate men to the kingdom are proper to the Father. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So here you have the other ten apostles, and they are not happy that these two tried to move into pole position of power and authority, even shoving aside Peter in some sense. And again, this is his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In what maybe some of them thought was this coup against the Romans, just as the Maccabees did against the Greeks 200 years earlier. And so these, these 12 apostles, they recognize there is power and glory in physical warfare, but they don't understand there is power and glory in the cross, which is the center of spiritual warfare. And so the notion of James and John having the most power and glory makes the other 10 indignant. Eganaktisan, which in Strong's Dictionary is defined as indignant, grieved, angry, or incensed. And then verse 25, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now this is one of my favorite moments in the Gospels. Too often this scene is described as kind of this hippie Jesus telling the doofus Neanderthal apostles to put down their, their big clubs of grumpiness because, you know, God is nice and you guys are the mean war hawks. But I see it differently. I see Jesus not as crushing their zeal, but directing it. And I see this, especially when I read the Greek. He's so, he seems like a coach, honestly. Jesus is like this coach, stopping this pilgrimage on the way to Jerusalem. And like a coach of any professional soccer team or professional football team, he pulls the guys around him for a prep talk. Not because they are these warhawk Neanderthals that he despises, because he's like this indignant hippie as he's made to be. No, because these are the best, or at least the, among the most sincere and among the most believing men he could choose in all of Israel at the time. Now granted, they, need, they needed some major tweaking here to understand this empire will be, will be built on love, not violence. But it's not a hippie love. It's, an, it's not an empire of wimpiness like these movies make it to be. It is an empire of great love and charity, but it's also an empire of great conviction and no compromise that he is building on these men who do understand no compromise on the law of God. And as far as the Old Testament, they, they understood it pretty well, even though they didn't make it probably into rabbi school. That's why they were fishermen and tax collectors and stuff. Any Jew back then uh, would have known the scriptures 
quite well. And for apostolic Catholicism to get transferred, it wasn't just a matter of the heart. They had to have sharp brains to do this. So even though these apostles are sinners, and obviously I don't even need to say this, Christ is not a sinner since he's holy and he's God, um, but he calls them around them, around him, he calls them around him not to berate them for wanting violence, but he shows that the violence must turn against themselves, which we Catholics call mortification. But as we're going to see here, mortification isn't just fasting, taking the discipline, wearing a hair shirt. It's also being a servant to others. Now, if you look today around Washington, D.C. or Rome, you will see nothing but dishonest power grabs. Or I should say, you'll, you will see a lot of dishonest power grabs in Washington, D.C. and the Vatican. Our Lord says today, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Make you think of anybody? Makes me think of a couple people. So nearly everyone wants power, even in the Catholic Church. Uh, but here's the next verse, verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The word there for servant is diakonos. That's literally where we get the English word deacon. Can you imagine a bishop or a priest or a cardinal or some prelate walking into a major seminary, a major Catholic seminary, and telling a group of transitional deacons, these are these guys mostly in their 20s and 30s, waiting to be priests, that whoever wants to be the greatest in the Catholic Church must leave formation before ordination as priest and go into the world and live as deacons. Sounds crazy to us, but this is, this is the path that some saints followed. St. Francis of Assisi was ordained a deacon, but never a priest. St. Ephraim of Syria was ordained a deacon, but never a priest. So isn't that interesting that we have this word diakonos, that in English is deacon? Whoever would be great among you must be as a deacon. You see how countercultural the gospel is, even to us Catholics who think we're such great Catholics? you imagine anybody in seminary who's about to become a priest would want Jesus to walk up to, be, to him and be like, I choose you to be a deacon the rest of your life? Most guys would be heartbroken. But saints like St. Saint Francis of Assisi were not. Verse 27, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. First, the word first here in Greek is protos. First meaning the most important. And then slave or servant here is doulos. So, Think about what we know as Catholics. We know, and this is dogmatic, not devotional, that the kingdom that Christ is always talking about, it is the Catholic Church. His kingdom will be the Catholic Church. And who are the most important people there? The servants. Again, this isn't me being a hippie. I'm admitting that the kingdom of God is the Catholic Church, but it is the servants who are the most important. And he doesn't just mean that in a spiritual way. I think he also means that physically. It's like him saying, hey, the most important people in the Catholic Church are the people who are the janitors of the Catholic Churches and have the true faith. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have these three orders of deacon, priest, and bishop. Of course I believe in those. I'm a Catholic priest, and I always will be, whether I go to heaven or hell. But notice, this is why so many great priestly saints, not just deacon saints, this is why so many great priestly saints did so many menial tasks and physical labor with their hands including St. Paul, who was a tent maker. That's why I hate these preposterous modernist phrases like, these hands were made for chalices, not calluses. Really, these hands should be made for both. Verse 28, 
Christ continues, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there we have the infinitive of to serve, diakonithinai, diakonithinai. So Christ is saying he himself diakonizes here. Christ is not only the high priest, but also the low deacon. And then we have that word lutron. It's a word that has just haunted me. And even before I decided to do the VLX series, I've, I've done word studies on this word. It means ransom. And again, we think of that spiritually, but that word also has a physical meaning in the Greek, that if someone is kidnapped, you can give yourself as a ransom or lutron in Greek, and that means you will take the place of the person kidnapped. How did this play out in church history? You ever heard of the ransom orders, the Trinitarians, the Mercedarians? These were religious orders set up to rescue mostly Christians in Spain, kidnapped by Berbers and Moroccan Muslims from the year 1200 to 1800. How many do you think the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians ransomed, you know, rescued, bought back? How many Christians do you think they bought back in that 600-year span? I would have guessed 50 to 100. Nope, the answer is 900,000. Almost a million Christians were kidnapped by Muslims who were in Africa. Isn't that interesting? Between 1200 and 1800, almost a million Europeans were taken into slavery by Africans. We don't always hear about that in our politically correct culture, but that's what happened. All slavery is wrong, even if it's Europeans putting Africans in chains or Africans putting Europeans in slavery. Obviously, all of that's wrong, but we never hear of the 900,000 that were ransom-backed by the Trinitarians and Mercedarians. But get this, the general, the superior general of those orders, the Trinitarians and Mercedarians, he had to sign up to be the chief ransomer if he was going to be superior general. That means if you know, from their main headquarters of this religious order in Spain in, say, the 14th century, if you were going to be the brother of the priest that was head of the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, and there was news that, say, a little girl from southern Spain got kidnapped by Muslims in Morocco, you could either pay, you know, Spanish people were tithing their money to the Trinitarians and the Mercedarians, and so the money they got, they might use that money to pay back the Muslims to rescue these kids back so they'd be using their own food money, or they could write to these Muslims and say, why don't you take me as a slave and release this little girl? And a lot of times these Muslims would take them up on it, and we have these great saints of these ransom orders who would go and live as slaves in the hands of Muslims. Why? Because they wanted to leave offering mass and just go live in Morocco? No, it was only because they kept the deal to release a little Christian girl or a little um, Christian boy from Spain. So imagine if that was the requirement of superiors of religious orders today, that you had to be willing to go take the place of an Iraqi Christian kidnapped by ISIS if you wanted to be head of a religious order today like the Dominicans. You think any priest would take that job today if, it was, if being head of the order meant you had to be the first person to sign up to go take the place of a 12-year-old boy being tortured by ISIS? I actually think there'd be a few priests. Not many, but there'd be a few. Okay, this isn't just to make people feel guilty. This is to say, remember that all levels of glory in heaven, they are not equal. If we make it to heaven, our level of glory is proportionate to the level of sacrificial love we lived on earth. So imagine the level of glory those priests and brothers in those ransom orders from the year 1200 to 1800. Imagine the glory they're in now. These men who purchased back Christian boys and girls, men and women, at the price of their own slavery, 
This is why Christ tells us today that whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Okay, and then my last thought on ransom. Remember I said that if someone's kidnapped, giving yourself as ransom, lutron in Greek, means you will take the place of the kidnapped person. It is you and I who were kidnapped by the devil, by us being born in original sin, and we further our slavery every time that we sin. We further our slavery to the devil every time we sin. But Christ took our place on the cross, paying in a few hours what we could never pay back in hell. And that is why the chief ransomer of you and me, when our entire human family was kidnapped by the devil, is Jesus Christ, who has rescued us by his passion and death and resurrection. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniet semper. Amen.